Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Good day, everyone. This is Steve King. I'm the Managing Director at Cyber Theory. Today's episode is going to explore the ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline, but from a cybersecurity analyst's point of view. Joining me today is Richard Steenen, a widely known and accomplished writer, analyst, and researcher, and the author of a great book called Security Yearbook 2021, a history and directory of the IT security industry. It's a great read. He has held leadership roles at PricewaterhouseCoopers, WebRoot, and Fortinet. Richard was a research VP at Gartner and currently researches and reports on over 2,600 IT security vendors with his clients being vendors, investment firms, and CISOs at large enterprises. So welcome, Richard, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for that kind introduction, Steve. Sure. So let's jump into this. Uh, Colonial Pipeline shut its entire network down on Friday of last week, uh, the source of, I think, nearly half of the U.S. East Coast's fuel supply after that ransomware attack. And, and so what is your opinion on the vulnerability of the U.S. critical infrastructure in general? I think it's extremely vulnerable. Um, a targeted attacker that was at least as knowledgeable as the NSA could figure out what needed to be done to cause just tremendous havoc, right? And a pipeline is one thing, a uh, power station is another, the signals for trains, the air traffic control system, right? It's just everything that, that makes our life move smoothly is connected to control systems, which are run by, you know, essentially mini computers that are completely vulnerable. They've never had to deal with patching and antivirus, and they haven't had security problems in the past. So they're just sitting there like they were 20 years ago with no security around them. You know, the the people who control those are aware of that, right? They know that a large power transmission line shouldn't be fiddled with because it could shut off the entire eastern side of the United States as happened in 2003. So they they try and be very careful about connecting those things to their corporate network and through that to the internet. But they're not always sure that they've done that because they're not testing to see if they've done that. And they're probably not, you know, patrolling their lines and power stations with drones to see if there's rogue access points, Wi-Fi access points on those systems. So they're they're not going to that next level of defense. So so I see us in a very vulnerable position. And I've always thought we're really lucky that most of the people that want to attack us are more interested in explosions in death than they are in actually making life miserable for us. Yeah, I'm not so sure that's going to continue, however, when the, this one, you know, reaped the sort of reward that they were looking for, which was a lot of notoriety uh, yeah. in the mainstream media. So, you know, I'm I'm curious as to if you think that the folks that run these CIA operations know that they're so vulnerable, why don't they do something about them? You could ask that about any enterprise, right? You bring in a security person and they'll tell them all the things that they should be doing and they, they think they're making wise risk-based decisions, 
but because they can't actually measure or predict the risks that are associated with some of these outages, uh, they're always wrong. And they just go ahead and blunder along until it happens. And I, I feel this personally because here in Southfield, Michigan, almost 20 years ago now, uh, Lowe's was, you know, the big home, home repair center. And a couple of kids were parked in the parking lot with a foil wrapped Pringles can and they're tapping into the Wi-Fi access point and stealing credit card information from the point of sale terminals. And, you know, it's a big story here and blogged about it and told everybody in the retail world to, you know, start setting controls on your Wi-Fi access points. Nobody did. And sure enough, you know, TJX stores two years later succumbed to the exact same attack in Minneapolis. Exact same thing. Pringles can, parking lot, young kids, stealing credit cards, selling them on the Russian carding networks. You know, and I I just like, okay, I can shout from the rooftops, but the people who need to hear it are never going to read my blog or any article I write for anybody. And it's just like shouting into the wind. It's not going to be heard. And it helps when the federal government says things, you know, and CISA did a great job of that over the last year or so. But still, people ignore those too. That's not us. Or worse yet, and I'm sure, you know, if you ever talk to Richard Clark, he'll go on about this, but an attack on infrastructure in another part of the world means nothing to organizations in the U.S. They just go, well, that's, you know, Colombia. That's not going to happen here. Or more recently, that's Ukraine, you know, who had literally had their power shut off by a targeted attack coming attributed to a Russian uh, sandworm, which is part of the GRU, military intelligence. So, you know, and, and the tools that sandworm uses have been spotted on our critical infrastructure. And yet we're not doing anything. We're vulnerable, but we're not doing anything. So it gets frustrating. Yeah, of course. And, and you know, you got to you know, on the IT side of the house, you've got board members making risk decisions all day long as, as it is part of their job to do that. And they maybe wage a $100 million loss against the, you know, the, the cost to to build out some sort of a, you know, network protection scheme or what have you and say, hey, you know, we're going to transfer 50% of that to insurance and and we'll just accept the other 50 million, you know, and right. but it's very different in critical infrastructure, of course, now yeah. that we have real lives at stake and so forth. So certainly right. And that the colonial pipeline attack was just plain old ransomware, right? Which tells you something about the state of their IT security because succumbing to ransomware, you know, it's a real black eye, right? It means there are a whole bunch of things you weren't doing properly. Mm. It's kind of embarrassing, you know, puts your organization at the same level as a state or local government, which of course, you know, they don't have budgets and they don't have the personnel. So you can kind of give them a pass on succumbing to ransomware, but not a commercial organization that that does billions in revenue and transports billions of barrels of gasoline. They don't get that excuse, right? They should be, they should have top-notch controls in place for to prevent simple things like ransomware. And then exactly. Um, What I took out of their reaction was that they knew how critical their pipeline system was because they shut it down just that the thought that it could be attacked, but they didn't have the confidence in their systems 
to not shut it down, right? If they were a resilient organization, they would be able to immediately say, yeah, this thing happened in our office. We can't read email anymore and our billing system is down, but we know that nothing touched the operational technology side of the house as Saudi Arabia did. Saudi Arabia had a, or Saudi Aramco had a much worse attack that literally destroyed all the hard drives on all the computers on the business side. And they were immediately able to say, yeah, you know, devastating attack, but we're not shutting down any refineries because we know that they weren't attacked. All right. And I think that one took a hundred days to recover from, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. That one spiked prices of hard drives because they deployed a team to uh, Asia to buy all available hard drives. They bought 50,000 hard drives to just replace all the hard drives. So they knew they had clean systems. Hopefully all those weren't made in China. There there have been quite a few stories written about cyber attacks, uh, Richard. And, but I think Thomas Reed wrote a book titled at the abyss and insiders history of the cold war. It's a story about the U.S. planting backdoors in the software of a Canadian pump manufacturer that was eventually deployed on a new Soviet pipeline. I know you know the story, so talk to us about the parallels between art and life here. Yeah, so the uh, you know I, I started to write a book on cyber warfare way back in 2008, right when I figured you know after the attacks on Estonia and Georgia. I could start talking and using the term cyber warfare without being laughed out of the room because these were nation state attacks. So of course I, you know, came across the farewell dossier story. And it was, you know, first time I ever saw it was in uh, Reed's book, but it was written up by William Sapphire in the New York Times, who, you know, William Sapphire was a, a conservative that the New York Times kind of opened their doors to so that to demonstrate that they had uh, both sides both viewpoints represented. And Sapphire related the story of his friend, Gus Weiss, who was in the National Security Group in, I believe it was the Reagan White House. And, you know, just a tremendous windfall had come to the French because they had basically cultivated an, an insider inside the top level of the apparatus in the Soviet Union. And he was feeding them all these secrets. And including a shopping list list of technology that they uh, were seeking to acquire through their spy operations, and one of them was uh, control system technology for pumps for their uh, natural gas pipelines in uh, Siberia. So that's when Gus Weiss claims that they decided to implant malware in back doors in that stuff and then they allowed the soviets to steal it from the canadians and the story goes that the entire national security apparatus was up and you know just shocked when they saw this massive explosion in siberia and it was and gus weiss came running down the hallway and he said relax relax we know what that is you know that was just a gas pipeline exploding you know it was so big that it looked like a nuclear explosion from space and I'm going, wow, you know, that was way back in the 80s, right? So the Reagan administration. <laughs> so, you know, I started researching it. That's, that's where the book's got to start, right? The first use of cyber means to cause physical harm. There's no corroborating evidence whatsoever. And 
every time you see the story, it goes back to Gus Weiss. And interestingly, he published that story on the CIA's website. So, you know, and I've, as I get less naive, as I get older, I realize, hey, if this, if it's on the CIA's website, you can't trust it, right? Because they're spies and spies lie. That's their business. So it could be just some, you know, fake news that they're putting out there for whatever purposes. To this date, I've been looking for evidence of a massive explosion in the Soviet Union at that time, and there aren't any recorded. Nobody's ever shown us the satellite photos of it, which they could easily do. I can't track natural gas prices back far enough, but if that were the case, they would have spiked after they lost an entire pipeline. So I can't find data online that goes back that far, or that would help me corroborate the story. So I figured, hey, I'll just call up Mr. Weiss. He's only 72 years old at the time. (laughs) So I went to try and track him down, and he had been basically had fallen out of a seven-story window in the Watergate apartment complex in D.C., (laughs) 72 years old. And the coroner's report was, you know, death by suicide. And, you know, that's just like perfect spy material there. You know, I'll get the conspiracy hat on and just think about that. So great story. You know, like you say, it's art and reality because the, you know, we still have a perception that you could blow up a pipeline or you could blow up a power generation system or you could make a generator and a dam blow up if you just had access to its control systems. Yeah, I, and, and there's so many of those doc, well-documented. Yeah, that, yeah, know, yeah. It's frightening. It's actually frightening. It is, it is. On the colonial attack, you know, some of us in the industry are, you know, don't need any convincing that the attackers were a proxy for the Kremlin. That's been going on for years and years, and, you know, some of us think that this was direct retaliation for the sanctions that we just slapped on Russia. And, you know, now we've got air travel getting ready to get to a sort of semi post pandemic comfort level for most folks. And the peak summer driving season is on us and gas prices are already up a buck over last summer. How much of this attack do you think is aimed at the continuation of division? fear and disruption of our, you know, societal fabric, you know, because a lot of this now casts some very serious doubt on leadership in Washington, D.C. in terms of our response to, you know, was a significant outage for folks. And I have to believe that the misinformation, disinformation, malinformation campaigns that both the Chinese and Russians have been running for the last couple of years that there's a big piece of this that's that. What's your view? Yeah, I don't attribute malice to the actual, you know, dark side team and their managed product. You know, I think it was pure uh, ransomware attempt to get rich. Now, that said, you know, certainly, you know, they appear to be Eastern European or Russian just based on what, what we can see from the malware that they use. But I had an interesting conversation with somebody once who explained to me that his uncle was a Russian oligarch. And so he kind of explained how it worked. And, you know, so if you're just a small company or entrepreneur or whatever, living your life in Russia, you're not part of the criminal ecosystem 
that governs the country. You know, you pay your taxes and you might have to bribe the local you know, law enforcement or something, but you don't fall under Putin's sway until you get to over $100 million in either money or, or revenue. And I was thinking about that as I read Brian Krebs's column that described the past of the dark side people. You know, they're, you can draw the dots between them and previous attack campaigns. And there was one that claimed to have collected $2 billion in ransoms. That would definitely put them in the sights of the Putin regime. You know, they right. would have to, they would have to contribute or do whatever you do when when you kiss the ring of the mafia boss. Right. So, and if we're talking money that big, then yeah, for sure, Putin's got a hand in it and he profits from it. But I doubt it was you know so carefully orchestrated that pure ransomware would shut down a pipeline. Right. That was purely the decision of colonial pipeline to do that. Now, if it had been a attack against their critical infrastructure, you know, where they actually turned off pumps or cycled them at the natural frequencies of the pipelines, then yeah, that would be tantamount to an act of war. It'd be an attack against the homeland and the sanctions would come out pretty fast and maybe even physical response, which the Pentagon is authorized to do. Right. That's right. <laughs> well, and that, well, I guess proportional response might be uh, a counter attack on a pipeline that feeds national ga- natural gas out of, out of Russia as well. Well, they've, um, they've got a much bigger lever to pull. They could get Germany and, you know, yeah. Eastern well, Western Europe to shut down Nordstrom, the Nordstrom three project. And that would, yeah. Yeah. That would be crippling to Russia right now. You talk about what uh, you refer to as the Ohio pipeline story. Tell our listeners what that's about and what your experience with a major gas pipeline customer of Gardner's that you once visited in Ohio, I think, right? Yeah, this was about 2003. And I was driving through the state, probably heading back to Michigan, stopped in to see them. And these were, you know, these were essentially sales calls, right? Because Gartner clients you know, pay a big subscription every year. And when the subscription is due to be renewed, the sales team wants to get the analysts in front of them to demonstrate the value, right? Right. So off I go and, you know, they're always, you know, I was, I think, I guess I was a lot younger then. I was probably 40 and, you know, didn't know much about pipelines other than I wanted to weld the Alaskan pipeline when I was 18. So I just asked my usual questions, you know, which included, uh, hey, you've got a you know critical infrastructure uh, responsibility here. Is the pipeline you know are the pumping stations, sensors, and all the rest connected via TCP/IP? You know, are they on a modern network? And the CIO said, ah, "Let me think." And then the director steps, "Oh yeah, I saw a network diagram for all the pumping stations and the Cisco routers in them." And the IP addresses. So yeah, we're on modern network. <laughs> and I'm kind of, you know, and I said, of course, that's not connected to the internet. And they're like, you know, you tell their thing, maybe we should go check that. And then I asked my favorite, towards the end of the conversation, I asked my favorite question is, do you have laptop theft? And that's always leads up to, you know, do you do full disk encryption to avoid data loss when people steal laptops? And the answer is, 
always yes. The CISO or the CIO might say no, but then the person responsible for security will will say, oh, yeah, we do. In a big bank in New York City, it'll be six or seven laptops a day are, are stolen or reported lost. But anyways, they said, yeah, there, we did have a laptop stolen. As a matter of fact, it was the same engineer who had published that network diagram. And I said, oh, really? Anything else? Yeah, one of the pumping stations was broken into, but the only thing stolen was the Cisco router. And now my spidey senses were tingling because if I wanted to you know, disrupt a gas pipeline, I would want the router. I could probably easily extract the username and password from it. And I would want the laptop of the person responsible for managing that network because I could probably get the information I needed off that laptop as well. And, you know, this is only a couple of years after 9-11, so I was cognizant of these dangers, and but I didn't know who to call. You know, in 2003, you wouldn't have called the FBI about anything cyber-related. They were, you know, clueless at the time. Late to the um, party, yeah. Yeah, they just they wouldn't have known what to do with it. So, uh, you know, thankfully, as far as I know, they never had a major breach, nothing that got into the news. But... It was my first exposure to the idea that there are pipelines buried in the ground everywhere that are transporting all this gasoline, which I treat as one of the most dangerous substances we ever encounter day to day. Right? If if we invented the internal combustion engine today, you know, the Congress and committees and safety boards would decide it was ridiculously dangerous to actually have vehicles driving around full of gasoline and burning it <laughs> in engines. We just wouldn't do it. That's crazy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's funny. Now um, we have people on the East Coast, you know, panic buying gasoline and filling up garbage bags and putting it in the back of their truck. I know, just to make it worse. Right. Some of the unique dangers with pipelines, by the way, also have to do with harmonic dynamics. And, and that presents, to your point, an even larger potential threat compared to a shutdown. Tell me about how that works. Yeah, you know, you have to understand dynamics. Everything has a natural frequency at which it can vibrate. And this is kind of, I was in structures uh, in my early career. And uh, you always had to make sure that the, the whatever structure, a car seat, a whole car frame, a bridge or a building couldn't be excited at its natural frequency by anything, you know, on board. So a car, of course, is driving across the road. So you had to make sure it didn't vibrate at have a natural frequency at 12 hertz because uh, most suspension systems would generate uh, inputs at that. And same with buildings, right? At buildings, you can't avoid having a natural frequency that's pretty low. You can set up an oscillator that could knock down a building in just probably a couple of weeks. And the oscillator itself would be no bigger than your hand just by adding an input on every cycle that amplifies the cycle over and over. And we've seen that with bridges, the Tacoma Narrows bridge is you know, taught in every college engineering class in the world. So that yeah, that's, a, that's with, a frightening thing to watch that. Uh, yeah, it is yeah. terrifying. You know, and when you think of that, you know, and of course we've seen telephone lines in the country uh, whipping around like a jump rope in the wind and the wind's not strong enough to do that, except that the, the way the wind flows across the wire sets up these uh, vortices that oscillate it, that excite that frequency. So you hang weights 
you know, not in the center or not at the anti-nodes, but some fraction in between the two. Pike lines are big, long, I think of them as big, long guitar strings with very low frequencies and changing whether they're full of fluid or not. And they've got a driver, right? The turbine pumps, turbo pumps on the ends that are forcing the fuel through them. And if you tuned those turbo pumps to the natural frequency of that pipe segment, it would leap around and tear itself apart. And of course, it would spew, you know, gasoline or kerosene all over the environment. And it would probably, there'd probably be sparks as well. So it'd be a massive explosion. And this isn't science fiction, right? That's just how it works. We know that that happens, but it's, almost exactly how the uh, nuclear centrifuges in the tons were destroyed by changing the frequency at which the motors that controlled them were running. So it drove the frequencies up until they shook them apart and probably spewing radioactive gas into the chambers they were in and probably hurting, hurting people. <laughs> it, feel, it feels like we're, uh, you know, and then with the, with the current rush toward digitalization and 5G around the corner here. It feels like we're always like pushing the edge of the envelope without any regard to the size of the risk that we uh, that we continue to create for ourselves. It's uh, it's yeah. always yeah. it's always interesting yeah. to me. Yeah, we uh, move forward based on the benefits, um, with you know, with sometimes just not the imagination to hold back based on the risks, and then the risks happen and we rebuild and that's when we invest what we need to do to make sure it doesn't happen again. You know, you build uh, in an earthquake district like San Francisco and you don't protect gas lines from rupturing during an earthquake and you had the earthquake in San Francisco and the fire subsequent fires. So you, next time you build San Francisco, make sure it's earthquake proof. Yeah, right. Or we have San Bruno and the Pacific Gas and Electric explosions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so up here at like ten thousand feet, from my point of view, we're not we're clearly not winning this war, right? How would you suggest we change our course? What is required to reverse the the relationship dynamics between us and our adversaries? Yeah, there have to be repercussions. You know, if you were at the National Security Council level. I think this would be a time to talk about regime change in some of the adversaries. Unfortunately, the adversaries happen to have a lot of nuclear weapons. Um, but, <laughs> but Russia is a very, very unstable environment, right? The people will revolt, you know, very little motivation. To, it doesn't take much more motivation to get them to push back. And then palace coups, you know, would be probably the most likely thing that's going to happen to Putin, right? You can only be the boss for so long and with the hopes of a new regime that is more amenable to just playing nice with the rest of the world, right? And that based its you know, purpose in the world, intimidating everybody else, right? You know, we don't have these problems with France and England uh, and even those two play nice together. That's super high level. And but if we just give the status quo, we've got an adversary who, you know, is making himself and his friends and family ridiculously wealthy by feeding off their their own populace and likely to cause wars, which is the best way to take the attention off you. How do we deal with that? Well, uh, it's just like a bully, right? You push back. You call them out when when they try and bully. 
And when a you know, perfect opportunity that the EU and NATO just missed was when Russia was amassing hundreds of tanks on the border with Ukraine. And they actually left them there. They're still there. You know, talk about a nice target for a strafing run of, you know, some of our advanced uh, fighter jets. Just do it. I mean, they're the ones who are threatening. We're just taking out a threat preemptively. They're armaments, right? Who are they going to nuke if we do that? Yeah, those are tricky questions. Uh, yep. <laughs> and I, I, I'm but you I, asked, so that's why yeah, I answered. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, true. Putin, I think Putin's like the fifth richest guy on the planet. Many people don't know that. Yeah. And his yeah. oligarchs are filthy rich as well. And so yeah. from my point of view, Putin is all about Putin. And, I, you know, any kind of a palace coup that's going to take out a former KGB agent has got to be very cleverly designed. I don't expect that yeah. ever to happen there. You know, the folks that I'm more, far more concerned about are, you know, to the East and in the PRC with a emperor for life who is uh, very deterministically moving forward with his uh, Belt and Road Initiative. But it's kind of nice when they actually say what they're going to do and then proceed to do it. You know, it's True. not it's not like Putin. He doesn't say what he's going to do. He keeps saying he's doing the opposite. And right. So you have to constantly be interpreting what he's saying. Whereas China, you know, acts rationally on the inter international scene. And I think you know the trouble with China, of course, is that it's a kind of a bureaucratic dictatorship, and it's completely subjugating the Uyghur people and uh, any other minority in China. And so massive humanitarian disasters are occurring on our watch and the rest of the world can't do anything about it. Yes. And uh, Xi uh, Jinping is very clear about what uh, his their objectives are. And he's laid them out, as you yeah. say, to for the rest of the world to see. In five years, we're yeah. going to do this. In 10 years, we're going to do that. In 20 years, we will own a, uh, AI machine learning. and will rule the world and yeah. uh you know you guys come along or whatever you know so yeah. it's great but i i kind of i like it when they pin their hopes on a particular technology that's not proven you know there's no proof of the value of ai or applications that are changing the economic situation so they may very well pin their hopes on the wrong technology right they, they may they may yeah yeah did china decide that you know the sensors in cell phones would be the next big thing no that just happened because apple you know figured out hey we can put accelerometers in a phone let's find somebody who'll make them real cheap for us and now we you know you can use you can tell motion on a phone and that changed the world it changed everything we deal with every single day that created that led directly to spacex we didn't have control systems capable of landing a rocket, but until there was an industry of control systems uh, developed by the iPhone endeavor and everything else, drones, 3D printing, you know, just everywhere you look around us, you can see the impact of sensor and control system combinations. It's quite Yeah, exciting. that's absolutely correct. Hey, Richard, listen, I, I think we've run over our time today. This was fascinating, though, and I'm pretty sure our audience is going to get a big kick out of this exchange. And 
I want to thank you again for for taking time out of your schedule to join me in what I hope was a was an intriguing exchange. Yeah, absolutely. It was my pleasure. I felt like you know I should have a glass of scotch and a cigar, you know, when we're talking about all these big concepts. I think we should do that next time for sure. Let's do it for sure. All right, great. (laughs) And, And and I want to thank our listeners for joining us in another episode of Cyber Theory's journey through the complex world of cybersecurity, technology, and global realities. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve King, signing out. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory, or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.